Welcome to Junior Doctors Corner, the podcast that helps medical students and junior doctors like yourself not only survive but thrive in your careers. We cover topics including doctor well-being, career, and life outside of medicine. My name is Dana and I am your host for this podcast. Are you ready for a healthy dose of support, motivation, and inspiration? Then let's start this episode stack. And we're back with a second episode for the month of August. I really am excited that I finally met the deadline of doing fortnightly episodes again. Hopefully I haven't just jinxed myself and can keep this up for you guys. Today we have Dr. Patsy Tremaine back on the podcast. You might remember her from episode 52, How to Ace Your Fellowship Written Exams. In this episode, she shares her best tips on how to do well on a clinical exam. So this one is also a must listen if you have one coming up. If you enjoyed this episode and would like access to more of Dr. Patsy's wisdom, you can now purchase the book that she talks about in this podcast episode. It is available online and it is written with her son, Kel Tremaine. It's called Study Less and Still Blitz Your Medical Exams. So I will leave a link in the description. I really hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did producing it. Hi, Dr. Patsy Tremaine. Thank you so much for joining me again on Junior Doctor's Corner. Oh, it's a pleasure, Dana. I've been looking forward to it. Thank you. And for those of you who are not familiar um, uh, and or new to the podcast, so we did an episode with Dr. Patsy Tremaine a year ago, uh, and it was about uh, tips and tricks on how to, uh, you know, do well on your written exams. So this time we've uh, got Patsy back to talk about clinical exams. But for those of you who don't know, Dr. Patsy Tremaine is a performance psychologist. She has helped many doctors pass their exams and also interviews. And if you are interested, I will be um, leaving her details in the description. So Patsy, what are your top tips when it comes to preparation for clinical exams? Well, before I talk about the top tips for clinical exams, it's important to realize that it's very different from a written exam. It it involves non-verbal communication. And we can talk and we're in control of what we say, and the, but we're not necessarily in control of how it sounds because that is based on the limbic system, an ancient part of the brain, so that what we say isn't always as convincing as we would like it to be because of uh, the way we're thinking about what we're saying. Um, So there are things like posture, uh, gesture, your dress and appearance, your facial expressions, and your tone of voice. Um, so the nonverbal communication cues, that is the way you listen, the way you look, the way you move and react, they tell the person you're communicating with whether you care, if you're being true and honest, 
and how well you're listening to them. So talking about the top tips, I would say one thing is to record your voice and listen to it. Now, people hate listening to their own voices. We all cringe. We, we, we can't stand listening to ourselves, um, and we can't be objective. So, for instance, I'll give you an example. Um, quite a few clinical exams, they involve uh, stems outside on a door. Well, when you are... Uh, doing that go over you you put 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 a stem on your phone at home a stem on your door at home sit there stand there for the required 2 minutes 3 minutes or whatever then instead of going in to see an examiner you go over to your phone and you answer the first question clearly and distinctly and then you might give your thoughts about what the differentials could be etc Okay, then you go to your second stem. Again, you put your timer on for two minutes or whatever, and you do the same thing again, and then you go over and record it. Then you listen to it. Now, firstly, you listen to it for content, and you might notice, oh, I could have said that, um, expanded on that, or I omitted something, or I could have said something in the wrong order. So you give yourself, first of all, just a score for content, what you said and what how you could be improved. Then the hard part. The hard part is now listening to your tone of voice. And as I said, we, we can't do it. So it's good to actually pretend that it's a colleague on the phone and you're listening to their voice. And you ask yourself three questions as you're listening. A, do I like this voice? B, does it engage me? And C, do I believe them? Now, Let's just say you'd done two stems and you'd put them on doors and you'd written, you'd, you'd gone through the content for both of them and they were spot on. They were just what you wanted. You gave yourself nine out of ten for both of them. Then you went to listen again. So you listened to the first one and you thought, oh, my colleague is confident, clear, succinct. She knows what she's talking about. Nine out of ten for the tone of voice. Then you go to the second one. And remember, you gave yourself nine out of ten for content. But when you listened to this one, to the colleague, you thought, oh, the volume of her voice has gone down. She's sounding a bit tentative. She ummed and ahed a little bit. I'm wondering if she knows that as well as she says. I'm not sure I believe her. Well, that tells you that you don't know your material as well as you should because you are sounding tentative. So you give it about three out of ten. And then you don't you just mark it. This is this would probably be in the evening. At one of your study sessions, hopefully in the morning, a morning, when your brain is fresh, you would read around that area. 
And so that, I think, is a really good study tip because you do learn to recognise and you recognise when your voice doesn't sound good and also because it's you doing it, you know what you're thinking inside anyway, which is causing you to sound very tentative. Another tip, especially for clinical exams, is the fight and flight response. Consultants can ask you questions at the hospital. You can have mock exams and you might have a bit of a fight and flight response, but you're not going to have the same fight and flight response you're going to have in the exam. Your heart rate is going to go through the roof. And if it goes through the roof, if you don't, if you aren't able to manage that fight and flight response, in other words, keep a lid on it to a certain extent, then the chances are, well, the research shows that your attention is incapacitated and you will find that you're unable to retrieve as easily material that you know that is in your brain. The fight-and-flight response, as you know, it affects all systems of the body, such as, you know, the pupils dilate, we stop digesting. But really, there's only one thing that we as humans can help a little bit with that fight-and-flight response, and that is to take a big diaphragmatic breath. And if you take a diaphragmatic breath, let's say before you do a stem, Let's say you're standing at a stem and you take a big diaphragmatic breath. What happens is that your heart rate will go down, maybe only about five or six beats per minute, but it'll start to go down towards homeostasis. And that means that if you're looking at a stem, you are able to focus and concentrate on it rather than being aware of how extremely anxious you are. Now, you can't just do that on the day of the clinical exam. You have to do it in the weeks beforehand. Learn, learn when you stand at a stem that you take a deep breath before you read it. Or, and this is harder, when a consultant asks you a question, take a breath before you answer. And if you can do that, and if you can start to do that, then you're going to have control of your fight-and-flight response to a certain extent. So that would be my second tip. Another tip would be well-being. I find, I mean, I've been doing this for yonks, and I find that so many doctors, weeks out from their exam, they're teary, they're angry, they have toddlers that are running amok, their partner isn't helping them as much or they don't have anybody to look after the kids or they're just trying to study whenever they can and sometimes that's when they're supposed to be bathing the baby or playing with the baby, and they're actually not focused. They're thinking, I feel guilty. I should be studying. 
And that's an awful way to feel. What I've discovered is that well-being is really a key to exam success. And in fact, um, my son and I, we've just written a second book. It's called um, Study Less and Still Blitz Your Medical Exams. And it's coming out, I think, at the end of July. In that book, we talk a lot about well-being and resilience and how to, how to deal with it. And the, there are three areas of well-being that I think should be considered. The first one is sleep. And sleep underpins the other two, which are nutrition and exercise. Now, there's lots of books around on sleep hygiene, and I think most people understand that. But exercise, people feel so guilty and, th and think they just don't have time for exercise. And you're right, in some ways, if you if you insist on having to go to a gym or having a personal trainer or going for a 5K run, yes, you're not going to get your exercise. But I think doctors need to focus on the fact that every day is different for a doctor. You've got day shifts, night shifts, evening shifts. You can't just go and do a 5K run every day. It's not possible. But what you can do is have exercise in your mind. And when you're in the hospital and you've got a 15-hour shift and there's absolutely no time to go to a gym or go for a walk, you do have stairs, and I bet you climb stairs every so often, and there's also elevators. So instead of taking the elevator, go two, two steps at a time up the steps. And that's exercise. And don't berate yourself if that's all you can do. Or if you could park at the other end of the car park instead of right up close to the door. So that's exercise. The other thing is nutrition. Most of us let our nutrition go haywire when you in your sitting exams. You just eat comfort food all the time. But I think it's important to realize that sugar, if you have an excess amount of sugar, it impairs memory in some of the brain cells. And so it's a good idea to actually try and reduce your sugar intake a little bit. Now, that might just mean having a level teaspoon of sugar in your coffee rather than a heaped teaspoon, or it might be just re reducing your dessert, not having that second serving of ice cream. But those sorts of things are going to be very useful for well-being. But how are you going to do it? Well, I think the best way is to have a diary. All these things, all these tips I talk about, you've got to evaluate them. I would strongly suggest that you have a diary and that you open that diary every night before you go to bed and you say to yourself, what have I done today that is going to help me pass my clinical exams? And it could be activities related to well-being. It could be your clinical recordings. It could be perhaps um, having, having sessions with a consultant. All these things, but evaluate them and evaluate them all in a subjective way, just out of 10. Um, 
because that makes you accountable. And especially if you have a seven-day-a-week diary, uh, you know, open to a week, you can see what you've done over the last few days. It keeps you motivated as you are preparing for the clinical exams. Thank you for sharing those. I have a couple of questions. What would you say if someone were to say, okay, it's great that you have shared all these tips, but how far in advance do I need to start practicing all these tips? I would say a minimum of two months out from the examination. But I I mean, I've sometimes had doctors just see me for the first time four weeks beforehand. And if they're conscientious, um, it, it works for them. But if they're not, it doesn't. And it's sometimes hard to be conscientious and follow through with these things all the time. There is one other tip that I would suggest, and that's the use of imagery for clinical exams. Now, imagery is a very powerful thing but it can be used to great effect in clinical exams. For instance, if I got you now to imagine that you had a lemon on a plate in front of you and it was you'd cut it open and it was so juicy, beautiful yellow lemon, and you were very thirsty. So you popped a, a piece of lemon in your mouth and you started chewing on it. Now, I would imagine that right now you would feel that you're salivating a little bit. Yes? Yes. Okay. What is happening is that your brain thinks that you have a piece of lemon in your mouth and it is sending signals down to the cells in the mouth to secrete saliva to mitigate the effects of the lemon juice. But, of course, you don't have a lemon there. Now, imagine imagine any scenario that you might be given in a clinical exam. Can you possibly imagine, with all the experience so many registrars have had over several years, to find somebody in the, maybe a year or so ago with perhaps similar symptoms or perhaps the same age or perhaps some similarity, some maybe a differential or primary symptoms and think how you acted with them. And what that does when you sort of blend that with the scenario you have, it makes your voice more authentic you sound more empathic. You sound more interested. You, it makes the examiner think you really care. <laughs> you sound more, in, they're more engaged with, with how you sound simply because the brain thinks that. It's, it's like that lemon. It's thinking and, and, and using similarities from that, that experience that you might have had months or years ago. Since the pandemic, a lot of registrars have had their exams moved online, so conducting it via the Zoom fashion. I think a lot of the body language is lost when it comes to 
uh, conducting these exams over Zoom. And I personally think that it can be quite a disadvantage to some registrars, perhaps even for ones who do not have English as their first language. Do you have any advice around how to overcome this? Well, yes. It can be an advantage and it can be a disadvantage. The advantage is that the examiner doesn't see the hands very much clenching with fear and anxiety, but it's important on Zoom to keep the hands down. Don't let them go up to the face. Don't adjust your glasses or touch your hair or put your hands around your face. It makes you look as though you don't know what you're talking about. You can use one hand, but keep the other hand, and this is where the advantage of Zoom is, you can have the other hand count off things because nobody can see you counting off particular things, or you can squeeze your finger and thumb together or clench your fist to, to try and distract yourself if you're feeling flustered. You can also easily take a deep diaphragmatic breath without it being obvious as long as you breathe through your mouth, not your nose. If you breathe through your nose, usually you lift your shoulders. I think whatever way you have to do the exams, look for the silver lining. There's always a silver lining. There's a silver lining in the traditional methods. There's a silver lining in the Zoom method also on the virtual screen. And so we've talked about some things to do to prepare for clinical exams and you have covered some mistakes that candidates often do, like speaking too softly and not clearly. What other mistakes have you noticed a lot of candidates who come to you, uh, they tend to make? They study too much. That's an they interesting study, one. Yeah, they study too much. They study too much. They don't test enough because they're scared of how they're going to sound and come across. And they really, for clinical exams, by the time you've got to your clinical exams, you've had the written exams which have tested your knowledge. The clinical exams test a little bit more than your knowledge. They test how you how confident you are, how you come across, how, how you explain things. What you need to do is test more. The closer you get to the exam, the more you should test. But you test in the evening or after work, when you're tired, just the same as I suggested for the written exams. And this is because you procrastinate, uh, you have sabotaging thoughts, um, but more importantly, you're practicing under pressure. And if you practice under pressure, then you're going to be able to perform on demand at any time. So testing, but when you test, immediately mark in terms of listening to it, but don't study it. Study only when your brain is fresh. And you'll find that by testing, you'll find things that you, you know you could do better and then you can study around it. And in fact, the latest 
the latest study techniques. This is why this book is new book is called Study Less. It's because there have been a few um, a few uh, experiments done at university that show that if you test something first that you haven't looked at for a while, you're a bit rusty on or you don't like the topic, but make sure it's a high-value topic, then test it and you'll struggle. You will really struggle and you might even fail and when you, when you give yourself a bad mark. But then when you study around that particular question and topic, your study becomes meaningful all of a sudden, oh, now I know why I got that wrong. Now I understand. And then when you, that's out of working memory a few days later, you, you can try it again and see how you go because the studies that were done showed that the, the experimental group, in every case, because they had tested first, then the control and experimental group studied, then the control and experimental group did the same test again. The experimental group always were out ahead. So oftentimes, I, from my understanding, doctors who come to you for help for their exams more often than not, they have at least failed their clinical exams once. That's my understanding. What are some things that these candidates can do to help improve their confidence for their next attempt? Because often the first failure or subsequent failures tend to, uh, what's the word, take the wind out of their sail. Yes, it certainly does. Or I was going to say it knocks the stuffing out of them. And the reason it knocks the stuffing out of them is because doctors are not taught how to fail. Sports people always fail. They learn from failure. Failure is a part of success. You don't succeed without having failed and learnt from your failures. However, I must admit that failures in exams for medical medical people cost thousands of dollars and, you know, it's, it's, it is a little bit different. But consultants don't talk about failure. It's seen as a toxic thing. You fail, it's a terrible thing. And people are ashamed and embarrassed. And they're two of the worst emotions you can have. You know, you don't feel like going into work the next day. You feel you've let people down. You feel that other people are getting ahead of you and so on and so forth. So what I I, I get people to do is I, I, I say, why did you fail? I said, I don't want to know what the college said. I want to know why you think you failed. And I like them to reflect on their failures. And sometimes they don't know. But sometimes when you see the sort of stresses they're under, you understand why they failed. And many of them, it, I see people for their second, their third, and their fourth fails often. And what I see is that people fail once and then they study the same way, only harder. And 
I usually try and change, make some change that it makes it completely different to what they were doing before. The, the upcoming exam is different. They, they have to change their mindset. Instead of it being an ordeal, uh, change your attitude, change your mindset. Think of it as a challenge. What could you do that could be different? Could you work more on your well-being? Could you get somebody in to look after your kids or clean the house or do things? You don't have to do it all. And, you know, some partnerships are not equal. There's one partner doing a lot more than the other one. So maybe you need to sit down with your partner over a cup of coffee and delineate duties so that, you know, you have more support. So those are some of the things I would do. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. That was very helpful. I mean, you know, I not for me, but I'm very sure for our listeners, it is very helpful. And uh, Patsy, lastly, any ideas when your book uh, is going to come out, your second book? Well, before I, I got on this podcast, I put in the final proofreading errors. So I'm told that the first copy will come out July the 18th and it should be online I think by the end of July. Well thank you so much again for coming on to the podcast. I would be more than happy to have you back anytime if you would come back so thank you Patsy. I'd love to. It's been a pleasure (laughs) and thank you and I enjoyed your questions. (laughs) Thank you. If you really liked that episode, please don't forget to leave a review on iTunes to help a sister out. And don't forget to subscribe to our email list so that you never miss an episode.